Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. When we ended last week's episode, George Remus, the attorney-turned-king-of-bootleggers during America's Prohibition era, was in prison. After managing to gain control of more than a third of the country's alcohol, Remus had become a powerfully connected multimillionaire. He'd had high-ranking federal officials on his payroll. He'd provided booze to senators, to governors, hell, supposedly to President Warren G. Harding himself. All of this led Remus to mistakenly believe that he was powerful enough to avoid prosecution on his blatant bootlegging crimes, but he soon learned that some palms simply aren't greasable. And so, off to prison he went. This episode begins soon after his release, when he found himself back in court, again sitting at the defense table, but this time he wasn't facing bootlegging charges. This time, he was the defense lawyer in the biggest murder trial in Cincinnati history, talking to reporters about himself in the third person, as he was strangely wont to do. Remus said, quote, George Remus no longer is the bootlegger. It is George Remus, the lawyer, who will appear in court. George Remus knows law. Many a case he has sent to Clarence Darrow, and Darrow has sent cases to him, end quote. Days later, on his 50th birthday, Remus walked into a courtroom impeccably dressed in a silk suit. It had been seven long years since he had served as anyone's attorney, and now here he was, about to argue before Judge Chester Shook and what newspapers had already dubbed the trial of the century. His client was himself, and what he had told reporters was true. George Remus, the admitted bootlegger, had no business in this courtroom, Instead, his dual roles this time around were Remus the lawyer and Remus the confessed killer. It's kind of fitting that George Remus talked about himself as though he had multiple independent identities, because he sort of did. I mean, we all do to an extent, but he more than most. He'd been a poor immigrant, a pharmacist, a lawyer, a bootlegger, a millionaire— And now, he was a killer. By this point in his life, Remus the bootlegger had years earlier been convicted by the feds. He'd spent time in 10 prisons, testified as a federal witness in a high-profile corruption case against some high-ranking officials in one of those prisons, and he offered to flip on fellow bootleggers. Once it was clear Remus the killer was to stand trial, Remus the lawyer stepped forward. No longer did he trust that his graft payments would save his hide. Prosecutors were alleging that he had premeditated a shooting in Cincinnati's Eden Park, which meant he faced the electric chair if convicted. George Remus's very life was on the line. All that stood between him and death were himself and co-counsel Charles Elston. To understand how things reached this nadir, we'll back up a few years. 
You'll remember from last episode that Remus was convicted in 1923 of violating the Volstead Act thousands of times by exploiting its loopholes so he could buy up distilleries, then sneakily sell its contents despite the sale of booze being outlawed by the 19th Amendment. He was sentenced to two years in prison, which he was to serve in a federal penitentiary in Atlanta. He, of course, wouldn't serve that sentence without a fight. He intended to appeal locally, and if he lost that, he would appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. If he lost that, he'd appeal to President Harding, a man known to like his drink. Remus felt pretty certain he would never serve that sentence, and in the meantime, he had been approached about an easy-peasy job that sounded too good to pass up. See, federal agents were supposedly guarding 31,000 gallons of Jack Daniels whiskey in its St. Louis distillery. That maybe sounds like decent deterrent to have federal guards there, but the guards were on the take. A political fixer named Nat Goldstein had lobbied President Harding to appoint a guy named Arnold Helmich, the chief revenue agent in St. Louis. In turn, Helmich appointed William Kinney, whose brother was a state senator, to guard the Jack Daniels. Every single person up and down the chain was happy to look the other way while the whiskey within was siphoned away. So George Remus, the millionaire, bought the distillery. The plan was to siphon the whiskey slowly, bit by bit, so that outsiders would notice trucks and cars weighed down by barrels of the stuff. Remus was a patient man. He expected the process to take a full year. The process, by the way, was called the milking. But then, on August 2nd, 1923, President Harding died. Remus was far less familiar with his Massachusetts-born successor, Calvin Coolidge. It soon became clear that his hopes for a presidential pardon had died with Harding, and Remus resigned himself to his fate. He'd be going to prison. In the meantime, he still planned to milk the Jack Daniels distillery, though he wouldn't oversee it himself. He knew the feds were likely watching his every move as he readied to go to prison, so he instead delegated to partners on the ground, as well as to his beloved wife, Imogene, whom he trusted implicitly. This is Karen Abbott, author of Ghosts of Eden Park. Remus was very impressed with Imogene. I think he thought that she had street smarts. She was savvy. She was somebody who was as ambitious as he was. She understood, having come from a poor background herself, what it took to really um, assert yourself and make, make your way from nothing. But Remus wasn't as trusting of his partners, and with good reason. Instead of milking the barrels slowly, they rushed the job, siphoning day and night, hauling the whiskey to a nearby farm. Word of the sloppy job got back to Remus, who panicked. He and Imogene rented an apartment near the distillery to keep an eye on things. He watched as people milled in and out of the distillery, making no attempt to be remotely sly about things. Aside from complaining, Remus had no real recourse. If he showed his face at that distillery, he'd face far more than the two years he was already set to serve. And that wasn't him just being paranoid. He was no doubt right, because it turned out that even renting the nearby apartment was a mistake. Mabel Walker Willebrand, the assistant attorney general charged with overseeing bootlegging prosecutions, had agents following Remus. They quietly tracked him to St. Louis, noted that he was staying near a huge distillery, and then noticed the men on site who were very obviously siphoning out whiskey from that distillery. 
The agents quietly gathered evidence they passed along to Willebrandt. Meanwhile, Willebrandt was smart enough to know that Remus would try to appeal to the new president to get out of his prison sentence. She headed off the request, writing Coolidge directly to say, hey, giving this guy any slack at all would be a mistake. And Coolidge agreed with her. Remus's sentence began January 24th, 1924. But Willebrandt wasn't done with him yet. To keep tabs on this man who owned more than one-third of the alcohol in the country, she turned to her ace, Franklin Dodge. This is Willenbrandt's best hope. This is her favorite prohibition agent. He was a pedigree guy. He was from a very important Michigan family, a long line of politicians, sort of a very prestigious family in Michigan. His father got him a job with the federal government. Abbott again. She said a lot of people dismissed Dodge as a guy who just kept failing upward thanks to his family, but not Willebrand. Willebrand did see some promise and talent in him. He was willing to go and recover. He was willing to um, to uh, conduct himself in unorthodox ways to try to get information about bootleggers. And she really appreciated his willingness to go the extra mile. In retrospect, her faith in Dodge suggests that maybe she wasn't the best judge of character. From once Remus entered prison, he learned from a fellow inmate that the same Franklin Dodge wasn't as upstanding as his boss clearly believed. Once Remus is behind bars for violating prohibition laws, Dodge encounters Remus again. Willenbrand sends him down to the Atlanta Penitentiary to investigate um, reported prison corruption among officials there. So by this time, Remus had heard a couple things about Franklin Dodge. He heard that he was amenable to quid pro quo, he would take bribes, he was maybe somebody that could be reasoned with. And Remus starts to look at Dodge as somebody who might be able to help him get out of jail so he could return to Imogene and return to his uh, bootlegging business. The next time Imogene came to visit, George told her, sidle up to that guy. Make nice. He could help me. Imogene promised that she would. George's plan was to befriend Dodge and offer to give up info on other bootleggers in order to shorten his own sentence. The two began meeting in prison, which worked out for Dodge because Willebrandt also had him investigating corruption inside that very prison. Corruption that George Remus was very much a part of considering he had bribed everyone to make his imprisonment as much like a holiday as possible. He was able to redecorate his cell to his taste. He hired his own maid. He hired his own private cook. He would take his dinners in a separate room on a long mahogany table with a beautiful linen tablecloth where he would be served. Um, He often held dinner parties with his fellow bootleggers, prisoners. And and his Imogene would come and visit him and she would be allowed to stay over and she would also scrub his cell on her hands and knees. His fellow prisoners actually called her the angel of the pen. If you remember from last episode, that's Abbott's parrot in the background adding in his own commentary to the story. Each time Imogene visited George in prison, she dutifully gave him updates on her attempts to cultivate Dodge. It was going swimmingly, she assured him, but she left out one important detail, that she and Dodge were having an affair. Remus first heard it from a fellow inmate, a bootlegger he'd often dine with. Not only did Remus not believe it, but he hit the bootlegger. But the rumors continued. Remus couldn't escape them. She heard that they were having a torrid affair, and he was tormented by this, as you can imagine. He was quite disturbed, and the more disturbed that Remus became, um, the more unhinged he started to act. He'd pace his cell, he'd tear his hair, he'd swing from mania to depression in record time. 
He'd already lost control of his life, he'd lost control of his wife, and now some feared he was losing control of his mind. George Remus was beyond erratic behind bars. After he had heard the rumors about Imogene and Dodge, his wife's visits abruptly stopped. For a bit, he at least still received letters, batches of them at a time. But then those stopped, too. It was as if Imogene had just disappeared. Friends who visited Remus in prison said that sometimes he would blank out for 10, 15 minutes at a time, almost always triggered by mention of either his wife or of Dodge. He could be calm and lucid about other topics, but as soon as one of their names was mentioned, he would rant and rave in ways his friends had never seen before. Everything was going wrong for Remus. He was so eager to do whatever he could to trim time off his sentence that he agreed to testify about the bribes he had paid the warden and other officials in Atlanta. But giving that testimony cost him his lap of luxury in Atlanta. In 1925, he also testified in the Jack Daniels distillery case, turning on his previous partners, even though it meant he started getting death threats in prison. He'd done all of this in the hope that Willebrandt would lessen his sentence, but that didn't happen. Instead, he was bounced around from one prison to another, in part an effort to protect him from snitches get stitches type retribution behind bars, but also because various jurisdictions hit him up with different crimes for the same liquor operation. The feds got him for violating Volstead, but after that sentence was served, Remus was sent to a jail in Troy, Ohio, on a conviction of maintaining a nuisance at the farm, the nuisance being his bootlegging operation. Anyway, weeks before his final sentence was to finish in 1925, Remus received word that Imogene was suing him for divorce. She cited cruelty, and in fairness, it sounds as though there's something to that. As much as George spoke adoringly of his wife, he was also known to scream and punch and hit her. He admitted this in letters he wrote to her from prison in which he apologized for his violent rages during some of her visits and tried to explain that it was just because he was under so much pressure. It was probably unwise to raise a hand to the woman who owned his house, ran his business, and served as his power of attorney. And when you hear the old saying about a woman scorned, Imogene should come first to mind. She and Dodge tore through Remus's Cincinnati mansion, taking everything they could carry. Statues, paintings, plants, jewels, absolutely anything and everything. And then they sold the stuff from a PBS documentary. They sold off his distilleries, his stocks of liquor, and the liquor withdrawal certificates for which he'd paid more than $200,000. Dodge is taking everything that is most precious to me, Remus said. He has ruined my life forever. He brooded for months behind bars. When you think about it, Dodge's scheme was just as clever and as circular as the one Remus had devised for his bootlegging operation. Dodge had been tasked with taking down Remus, which he did. He spoke in court to judges on behalf of the government about what a menace Remus was, how he should be locked up for as long as possible. Then he bagged Remus's wife and, through her, profited off of the very crimes he'd arrested Remus for. 
Remus told anyone who would listen, I'd love to see Dodge dead. That sentiment only heightened with the next blow dealt to George. He learned that the U.S. government suddenly questioned his legality as a citizen and had started taking steps to deport him. George knew this was the work of Dodge and his wife. He knew because he had confided in Imogene that he technically wasn't a citizen because his dad became one after George turned 18. He forged documents to push his year of birth a bit later, thus making him younger. And that's why we're not 100% sure what year Remus was born. Word reached assistant AG Mabel Walker Willebrand that her so-called ace, Dodge, was on the take, and he was fired. She wanted that to be the end of it. After all, it reflected poorly on her that someone she had lauded so publicly would turn out to be crooked. But a brash 29-year-old man named J. Edgar Hoover had recently been appointed to take over the Bureau of Investigations, later known as the FBI. In fact, he got the job in part because of Willebrand's recommendation. He, too, had heard about Dodge's shenanigans and asked if he should investigate the former agent. Willebrand said, no, no need, he's gone. But Hoover wanted to, and so, even though Willebrand outranked him, he did it anyway. He sends one of his own agents to spy on Franklin Dodge, sort of a spy versus spy situation. And what does Hoover's agent discover? In one instance, J. Edgar Hoover's agent literally catches Franklin Dodge with his pants down. This was especially shocking in an era during which some hotels had separate floors for men and women, and unless you were married, you weren't even allowed inside the room of the opposite gender. Now, after Hoover died a billion years after this case, we learned that he had done all sorts of nefarious, hypocritical things while in office. But at this point in his career, he actually seemed to care about doing things by the book. He did not want any corruption on his staff. He wanted people who were not taking bribes, who were not working with bootleggers. He really wanted the true and honest force of prohibition agents. So the more he learned about Dodge, the more concerned he grew. Finally, George Remus was released from prison after serving two and a half years. He walked into his mansion to find it completely stripped of all belongings. Here's Paul Giamatti reading Remus's words in a PBS documentary. It was the supreme double-cross. Remus had been betrayed by everybody he had trusted. And now, at last, by the one who owed him the most. The betrayal gnawed at him. And then he got word that Imogene and Dodge had even worse plans for him. He was told they had hired a hitman. Harry Truesdale is the hitman that Franklin Dodge and Imogene Remus hire to kill George Remus. And just to give you a sense of how crazy things actually get in this book, at one point, this hardened killer, this hired professional hitman, is so terrified, he thinks he's the one that's going to get killed. After a few days of following George around, Truesdale approached his target, not to kill him, but to warn him. He thought what Imogene was trying to do was pretty cold, and besides, she had become so frustrated with how long the hit was taking that Truesdale was sure she was going to have him killed as soon as he did the job. So, instead of killing George, he gave him a heads up. Yo, your wife wants you dead. On October 6, 1927, Remus was headed back to court, this time for a divorce hearing. His final divorce hearing, in fact, 
On the drive over, he spotted Imogene heading to an awaiting car. She looked happy. She even laughed. Remus would later say it was the laugh that set him off. But others were sure he had concocted a deadly plan long before that. Either way, Remus hopped out of his chauffeur-driven car, chased Imogene down to Cincinnati's Eden Park, and as she begged for her life, buried a pistol in her stomach and pulled the trigger. Imogene managed to get into her car where her 19-year-old daughter, Ruth, sat in shock. They tried to staunch the bleeding as their driver sped to the hospital. Once there, Imogene's clothing was cut from her body. Charred skin encircled the gunshot wound because it was fired from such close range. Imogene couldn't recover. Remus, meanwhile, walked into a police precinct and announced he'd just shot his wife. He was exceedingly cooperative with detectives, walking them to the scene of the crime and explaining how it all went down. He said that somewhere in Eden Park, he'd lost track of the gun he used, and he even tried in vain to help find the gun. He soon told reporters, It was a duty I owed society. She who dances down the primrose path must die on the primrose path. I'm happy. This is the first peace of mind I've had in years. He felt absolutely justified in shooting his wife. His only regret was that Dodge hadn't been there to take a bullet, too. A month after fatally shooting his wife, George Remus stood in a Hamilton County, Ohio courtroom, speaking of himself in third person. By then, the reporters covering the case were so used to it that one wire story began, quote, George Remus, the dual personality known as Remus the lawyer and Remus the defendant, who is waging a spectacular battle in criminal court to save himself from the death penalty for the murder of his wife, dot, 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 end quote. And the case was already destined to be huge because of the players involved, but once reporters learned that Remus planned to defend himself with co-counsel, well, one writer said it was unprecedented in American jurisprudence. It made for confusing copy, that's for sure. One story quoted Remus as saying, quote, Remus is going to make the opening statement in the case of the state versus Remus. Remus's statement will be the longest ever made in a trial of this kind, about 12,500 words, end quote. Here's a few more interesting quotes. Remus has never known fear. Fear has never been a part of Remus's makeup. If it was, I never would have occupied the throne you newspaper boys used to put me upon, that of king of the bootleggers. To reign in the bootleg world, one necessarily must be devoid of fear. Remus has been the victim of too many plots and counterplots to know fear. Anyway... At first, Remus denied any plan of claiming he'd been insane at the time of the shooting, but he soon changed his tune. He said that he had been suffering from what he called brainstorms, which weren't sudden influxes of great ideas, but rather mini-explosions inside his mind. Pacing his jail cell while talking to reporters, he rambled about how he had only fired a gun twice in his life. One set of curiosity and the second time when his mind exploded and he, quote, shot and killed that woman, end quote. He was set to face formidable opponents in the courtroom. The lead prosecutor on his case was Charles P. Taft. 
not only a respected attorney, but also the son of former President William Howard Taft, who at this point in history was Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. You might remember from the previous episode that the Tafts were one of the prominent Cincinnati families that Imogene and George had invited to their legendary New Year's Eve party, at which they unveiled their monster pool. It seems the new-moneyed Remuses wanted to consort with old-money families, but they were never embraced by the legacy crowd. By the way, if this all sounds a bit great Gatsby, that's because George Remus was one of the inspirations for F. Scott Fitzgerald's J. Gatsby, a non-drinking fraud who got his riches dishonestly and spent his money recklessly. But it's generally accepted that Remus was just one of many inspirations. There were a lot of tasteless Novu Riche in the 1920s, after all. In fact, Fitzgerald based part of the character on himself. Anyway, the younger Taft, the one tasked with prosecuting Remus, was no slouch. He would later become Cincinnati's mayor and, later still, a gubernatorial candidate. But at this point, in 1927, he was a new prosecutor and suspected that the Remus case would likely be the highest profile of his career. If he'd had any doubts, those must have disappeared when he appeared at the courthouse for jury selection. There were a thousand people that tried to get into the uh, courthouse. This is historian Bob Batchelor, who wrote a book on the case called The Bourbon King. And they had to give out tickets, and people were trying to sell tickets when tickets weren't for sale, and people were fighting to get in. I mean, there are newspaper reports from all over the country. There were um, newspapers and, and wire services that were sending journalists to cover this around the clock multiple stories a day from every single angle. This was a sensational crime story, and it was covered all over the world. A search of newspaper archives worldwide backs that up. In November 1927 alone, there were more than 5,000 mentions of the name George Remus in America, in Canada, in the U.K., One story described the courtroom equipped with eight large tables to seat 20-some writers, plus numerous other chairs for feature writers. London's Daily Telegraph ran stories labeled in bold from our own correspondent. That correspondent wrote, quote, Before turning to bootlegging, at which he is reputed to have made millions of dollars, Remus, a plump little bald-headed man, was a lawyer, and he will defend himself on the ground that he was justified under the unwritten law, end quote. For longtime listeners, you might remember that's the same phrase used by Harry Thaw when he shot and killed architect Stanford White for having raped his wife before they were married. Just as with Thaw, the public largely sided with Remus. If you murdered your wife and she was having an affair, people thought that you were just um, protecting your house and that it was okay, which is so ludicrous to us now. Remus had another thing going for him when it came to public opinion. People at the time didn't like women like Imogene anyway. It was a tense time in American history. Remember, women had only recently flooded the workplace thanks to the Great War. They'd just gotten the vote in 1920. There was a lot of misogyny. A lot of men were upset and even angry that their mothers, their sisters, their daughters, their sweethearts, their wives suddenly had the right to vote. Um, And there was a backlash against that. And the backlash um, was against women who defied societal conventions. 
And people were especially angry at middle-aged flappers because they were old enough to know better. Imogene was the quintessential middle-aged flapper. Now, pleading insanity and also serving as your own lawyer is an interesting combination. Remus's argument was that his temporary insanity had subsided. And so he argued to Judge Shook that he was capable and qualified to represent himself because he was sane now. Prosecutors argued otherwise. The murder was just last month, they said. How could he have flipped from insane to sane in such a short amount of time? Charlie Taft didn't buy George's claim of temporary insanity. He believed Remus killed his wife because she knew that he was guilty of more than bootlegging. Here was his theory. In 1923, a Franklin County, Ohio sheriff from Brookville named William Van Camp was fatally shot while checking out two men suspiciously loitering in a parked car. All signs pointed to bootleggers. Remus was known to use a route that went through Brookville to transport loads of liquor. So Taft put two and two together. His belief was that Imogene knew George had killed this sheriff and was prepared to divulge that at the divorce hearing, and that's why Remus killed her before she got there. Taft might have believed that theory at the time, but I can tell you it didn't hold up long term. Two other bootleggers were indicted in 1939 for killing Sheriff Van Camp. In the courtroom during his murder trial, Remus defended himself just as theatrically as he had defended his Chicago clients back in the day. A New York Times headline, Remus near blows with prosecutors. The story describes Remus stamping his way to Taft and shaking his fist under his nose. The Daily News quoted Remus as shrieking, man, if I had you in the corridor, I'd wreck you physically. They wrote that last word phonetically to emphasize Remus's dramatic pronunciation. Daily News writer Martin Summers deserves credit for this descriptive, if slanted, paragraph about Remus's confrontation, which ran in a story November 19, 1927. Quote, His bald head oozed perspiration, his tiny blue eyes gleamed venomously, and his powerful arms swung like windmills, which would grind to pieces the slender Yale boy who stood before him, open-mouthed in surprise. End quote. Then Remus turned his rage on Carl Bassler, one of Taft's assistant prosecutors. He screamed that Bassler was a hypocrite, that during a trip to get depositions for the case, he had downed pints of whiskey. My life is at stake, Remus roared, and I will show that you drank liquor by the pint, not by the ounce, Mr. Bassler, by proper evidence. Every day of the trial was crazier than the last, though Not officially, because three psychiatrists brought in to watch each agreed that Remus was not insane now, nor had he been last month. Ruth Remus, the daughter that George had adopted as his own not a decade earlier, testified against him. She was 20 now, dressed in morning black, and she said that George had threatened her mother time and time again while they were married. Harry Truesdale, the hitman Imogene and Dodge had allegedly hired, testified for the defense, as did a number of Remus associates, including William Muller, who was the Remus Mansion's caretaker. He described watching helplessly as Imogene and Dodge gutted the lavish home. They tried to get him to help, he said, 
And when he refused, Imogene assured him that if his reluctance was out of fear that George would retaliate against him, he needn't worry. George wouldn't be around much longer anyway because, quote, we're going to have him deported, end quote. Bankers described Imogene and Dodge opening safety deposit boxes dotting the Midwest. Ben Oppenheimer, a lawyer and former judge who had briefly represented George in the divorce suit, testified that he had quit the gig specifically because Remus would get so worked up, pacing and screaming, wringing his hands, and getting violent. He didn't seem sane to him, Oppenheimer said. One of the oddest witnesses to take the stand was a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist named John T. Rogers, who had gotten to know Remus after an editor at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch assigned him to write a profile of the bootlegger after his prison release. Rogers was a hell of a journalist and, in fact, verified the whole Imogene hired a hitman plot, which he then told Remus about. Rogers testified that that info had triggered one of numerous so-called brainstorms, some of which lasted for seven or eight hours. Rogers said he told his editor months before the shooting that Remus was insane. Now, if you're wondering whether Franklin Dodge was called to testify, it's actually kind of odd. He was subpoenaed by the prosecution and put up in a hotel near the courthouse, prepared to be called to the stand. Remus even said he was eager to cross-examine that, quote, pimp, as he had come to call Dodge. But strangely, Dodge was never called. After four weeks of trial, a jury made up of 10 men and two women were given instructions. They could find Remus guilty of murder or not guilty by reason of insanity, but because Remus himself admitted repeatedly to the shooting, not guilty, period, wasn't an option. The jury deliberated just 19 minutes before it returned to the courtroom and declared Remus not guilty on the sole ground of insanity. The courtroom erupted in cheers. American justice, I thank you, Remus shouted. Jurors told reporters that they expected he'd be released to go home, but the judge said, not so fast. If he's insane, he needs to go to a mental institution. Now, Charlie Taft, the prosecutor, in trying to ensure that Remus not go free, suddenly had to switch his position and argue that Remus wasn't sane after all, despite having argued the opposite throughout the entire trial. Remus was sent to an asylum in Lima, Ohio, but he wasn't there long. He immediately appealed to the state hospital that, hey, I'm not insane anymore. I even served as my own lawyer, after all. And the state's own psychiatrist deemed me sane. Hospital officials agreed. Remus spent just two months in the state hospital for killing his wife. In 1930, so three years after the shooting, the gun Remus had used to kill Imogene was finally recovered. It had been Imogene's gun, in fact. The pearl-handled 32 caliber revolver was found during an Easter egg hunt in Eden Park. In 1931, Remus offered to donate his once-prized pool, dubbed the Imogene Baths, to the city of Cincinnati to use as a public pool. They declined. Three years later, he sold his grand mansion and adjacent 10-acre estate. He had never lived in it again, and years of sitting empty had taken a toll. 
He had once paid $75,000 for that house, excluding the renovations and pool addition. When he sold it, he told reporters that he only pocketed $5,500 in proceeds. In October 1934, the home's new owner had it raised to make room for a development. In 1940, the pool was dismantled too. Franklin Dodge, the disgraced FBI agent, was never charged in connection with the Remus case. After the trial, he went to work in his father's law office. In 1931, he was charged with perjury for lying in a different bootlegging case. Despite that conviction, he continued to get work, even working for the state of Michigan at one point. He died in 1968. As for Remus, He tried for years to find the estimated $2 million that Imogene and Dodge had stolen from him. He filed lawsuit after lawsuit accusing former partners of bilking him. He never succeeded, but he didn't starve either. He eventually got remarried and lived a relatively quiet life until he suffered a stroke in 1950. He lived for two years after that in the care of a nurse before dying January 20th, 1952 at age 73. To research this case, I did all the stuff I did for part one, the most crucial being that I read Karen Abbott's Ghosts of Eden Park. I also read days and days of newspaper coverage from the trial and went down too many rabbit holes about Ruth Remus, the girl whose adopted stepfather killed her mother in front of her and whose biological father died that same year. If you're curious, she had her adoption legally annulled, was married in 1930, gave birth to two sons, then died in 1947 after doctors mistakenly transfused in her the wrong blood type during a hysterectomy. She was only 39. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.